Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What have over 1,000 British police officers seen in the skies over the UK since the beginning of the 20th century? How many have actually had encounters with the UFO occupants? What is the evidence? Hello and welcome to the 734th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno here on ON 1240 Radio and our 10th year on the air. I'm Ben and those high-flying questions came from my co-host, partner in the paranormal, and father, Paul. And uh, today we bring you a returning guest who has assembled UFO evidence from probably the world's most credible witnesses. And uh, we will not be taking calls today, but we do welcome your emails and email comments or, and or questions at paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Gary Hesseltine comes to us via Skype today from the United Kingdom. Gary is a retired police detective constable, having served in the Royal Air Force, then in the British Transport Police between 1989 and 2013. He is also a world-famous UFO researcher, author, publisher, and lecturer. Since 2001, he has maintained, as far as we know, the world's largest database of UFO encounters by police, particularly British police. Gary's interest in UFOs began in 1976 when he was a teenager. He and his girlfriend had a life-changing sighting in his native Lincolnshire with a bright UFO that knocked out power in the area, much like the one in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Pretty cool, huh, Ben? Right. Yeah. Along with his other UFO-related activities, Gary publishes UFO Truth magazine and organizes conferences. Gary's websites include, uh, I'm just going to spell this, P-R-U-F-O-S, Police Database dot dot co.uk pr ufos police database.co.uk and also ufo truth magazine.co.uk so gary hesseltine welcome back to behind the paranormal thank you for having me back on oh well it's great great to have you with us so gary uh before we do anything else uh your own ufo sighting back in 1975 was pretty dramatic can you uh tell us a little bit about that Yes, uh, originally when I went public in 2002, I believed that the sighting occurred in 1975. Uh, however, um, when I met up with a long-time school friend who I hadn't seen for many years, through a process of elimination of girlfriends, I'd dare hazard to say, uh, we worked out that actually the sighting was in the August of 76, so when I was 16, and briefly... Uh, this was in my hometown of Scunthorpe in uh, Lincolnshire uh, and, and a, a suburb, a smaller area called Ashby. And uh, I was walking my then girlfriend home, a girl called Dawn, and uh, we were walking next to uh, my high school fields, which would be on our left, and on the right there was a large garden area uh, where people grow vegetables. In England we call that allotments where people grow their own uh, vegetable produce, etc. And anyway, there was no, at that time, there is now, but at that time, there were no street lamps uh, illuminating this long uh, footpath that I would say was approximately 500 metres long. And uh, at the point when we were beside the fields, um, in the distance we could see that there was a housing estate with all the power on it would probably be around half past eight in the evening it was a lovely warm summer's night not a cloud in the sky and one of those rare nights in england where no clouds uh, no wind and there were just masses of stars that you could see hmm. we then see a uh, 
an object moving from our right to left uh, that didn't have a really distinct shape, but it was much brighter, white bright light, uh, that was noticeably bigger than the background stars. It seemed to be gliding, there was no noise whatsoever, and as it passed by us, so if you can imagine that there is a straight pathway in front of where you are now, and then an object going further past you right to left, so you then are behind it, then all of the housing behind the object's flight path, all the power in the housing in the distance went off, uh, which was pretty strange because uh, it made the area very dark, immediately very dark, and my then girlfriend got, rightly or wrongly, got a bit anxious. We watched it as it went further along across the school fields and then the rest of the housing estate went off, power went off. Now, the good news was that I had my uh, bicycle with me so I said right get on the crossbar which in England uh, and Lincolnshire where I'm from was called Crogering believe it or not uh, and so the two of us rode quickly or I rode with her on the crossbar right to the end of the alleyway turned right to take her to her house which was in total darkness as was the entire area uh, which was approximately two or three hundred meters from the end of the alleyway. I then dropped her off and said, I'm going to see if I can catch up with the light. I then went back the way I'd come, back onto the same long footpath, but this time I'm racing on my bike very quickly. The entire area is in darkness. I come out of the alleyway onto a road called Grange Lane South. I turn right and I'm racing as fast as I can and the entire area is in total darkness. And I can see the object ahead of me on my right shoulder as it were ahead of me but by the time I had gone maybe um, quarter of a mile had towards half a mile on this long road Grange Lane and South there was a natural bend in the road to the left and at the point where the road bent to the left the power was on beyond it so at that point I looked over my right shoulder and realized that the object was now slightly behind me so I'd managed because I'd raced on my bike, I'd managed to get ahead of the light. I went round two corners, Westerdale Road, and then into Baysdale Road, number three, I lived at the top of the road. I dropped the bike outside the house. I rushed into my parents in the living room, and they were having, as in England we would say, supper. So we, they were having a cup of tea, and uh, I said, come outside. I think there's going to be a power cut caused by this strange light. They just look at me as if I'm stupid. They don't move. And so I then run through the hall, through the kitchen, into the backyard, to the bottom of the backyard, turn around to look back at my semi-detached house, just in time to see the object now moving over my rooftop, uh, a bit higher in altitude now. And at this point, I do something that I, I can't explain. I, do, I put my hand up as if I'm answering a question in class, straight above my head, and as soon as the object went past my hand, and I passed the 90 degrees, the entire area is plunged into dark, darkness, which is ridiculous. How can I predict a power cut? So it's at that point there, having had no interest in the subject prior to that, that I realized that whatever that object was, having moved to a second geographical location, 
that that object, whatever it was, must have interacted with the power grid because it's ridiculous to think that I could predict the power grid. Well, there, was there any sound, or how, how far away would you say no, the object no, was? No sound. Uh, when I first saw it, or when we first saw it in the alleyway, I would say it was a 60-degree angle, and I would say that as an estimated altitude on what I know now of aircraft and looking at planes through it up regularly in the sky, no more than two or 3,000 feet, absolutely no noise, no distinct shape, just a bright white blob of light moving totally silently, moving right to left. Uh, by the time it, come, it came over my rooftop at my house, it was smaller in size, um, so I, I suspect that it, it increased its altitude. Uh, it would be very difficult for me to estimate that what that was, but probably five, ten thousand feet now, much smaller, but over the rooftop it came. And as I say, when I put my arm up, and I don't know why I did this, um, as soon as it went past the area it plunged into darkness now what did I do about it I didn't do anything about it because I rushed inside to the house my mother was looking frantically for candles and I said I told you you should have come outside and she said coincidence she was more interested in getting the candles lit <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, we weren't on the phone believe it or not it's hard to believe now that there's people who weren't on the phone but in 1976 we weren't on the phone so the nearest phone box to me was some shops a few minutes away uh, who do you report it to anyway yeah you know yeah, right. uh, uh, it's not like Ghostbusters just ring Ghostbusters I had not a clue what to do but I can honestly say that even in the days afterwards we used to get the local paper the Scunthorpe and Evening Telegraph I never saw anything in the papers about it. Didn't even look. Um, uh, now, the only kind of corroboration I ever got, which was quite strange, was when uh, I was just beginning to uh, get involved in the research aspect, uh, and the late Graham Birdsell, who, who used to run the printed UFO magazine up until 2003 when he sadly died of a brain hemorrhage at the age of 49 I got to know him and he'd invited me to his uh, three day conference in Leeds which is actually where I worked which is one hell of a coincidence that it was on my doorstep and uh, at that conference he had uh, invited me to do uh, like an armchair discussion because I was just I'd just this would be 2002 so it was just as I'd launched the database and he wanted to introduce me to his what was a very large audience of about 700 people at Leeds University and we did like an armchair one to one for about three quarters of an hour and uh, at the end of it some people came to see me and they were all queuing up and uh, this guy came in front of me uh, who I didn't recognise at first uh, because he was completely bald and uh, I, I, I said I didn't recognise, but it turned out that he was somebody that I knew from school of the same age, same year at school, but he'd obviously lost his hair for whatever reason. But he said to me, I saw that, Gary, and I said, what do you mean I saw that? And I was stood beside Rob Simone at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, the hairs went up on the back of my neck instinctively because it, it, what he said, and I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, we were playing in a street... Uh, that was parallel literally to where I saw the object and no more than 400 metres away from where I was on this alleyway 
and he said we were playing football in the street under the street lamps uh, a few of us and we saw this strange light moving in exactly the same direction and he said as soon as it went past us the entire area was plunged into darkness now he couldn't be specific about the date or year even but he said it was while he was at school and he always remembered this and whilst I can never be certain it's a hell of a coincidence that something so you know some, something so unusual in such a small area was to happen twice so it could well be related but I'll never be able to prove that but that was the only kind of corroboration I ever got well, th that's uh, not an uncommon story though uh, that, that's, no, no. that sort of thing now, one of the things, we want to get into the police sightings, of course, but uh, this is a fascinating subject just uh, from other things we've heard from other, other experiencers, as they're called today. Did you feel, uh, Gary, that you had some sort of personal connection with this object? Now, we've had people say that they saw an object ju just as you described, and they felt as though they were being... Uh, tested yeah, or so someone said tested or like that it was like a privilege or something yeah privilege yeah, yeah. yeah that sort of thing did you feel anything like that I can honestly say no uh, uh, and uh, uh, it's a question that has come up from time to time however uh, not at the time uh, however what that did was indirectly set in motion a number of things that would take many years before I eventually decided to go public with my research. Uh, I mean, in 1976, in England, this was just before uh, the era of uh, the first, um, uh, you know, rec video recorders, VHS, Betamax, that came onto the market. So um, there was n at that time, there was nothing. And so the only thing that I could do to research, I'd heard of the word flying saucers and UFOs, because I guess that's part of the, 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 the dictionary, as it were. But the only thing that I could do was go to my local uh, bookshop, second-hand bookshop, and believe it or not, the first book that I ever got was Aliens from Space by Major Donald Kehoe. Now, I did not have a clue who Kehoe was at that time, but that was the last of his five books, and uh, I read this, and, and within that book there is a mention of the uh, the famous New York blackout where the eastern seaboard was knocked out for six or seven hours reportedly after UFOs were seen in the vicinity of, of generators uh, buildings. I remember and, that. Yeah, uh, uh, and I think that was 1965. Yes. And, uh, and, and basically what that immediately did was give me some kind of validation that whatever that light was, it was pretty strange and, that, and it had happened before in history as it were uh, but I mean of all the books that I could have the very first UFO book that I get it turns out to be somebody who I regard as arguably one of the, the top three heroes in the entire subject of ufology so of all the books that I could have got I find that a hell of a coincidence that I got that book and within that book there was this uh, you know reference to uh, a power outage like the one I'd seen you know but it, the, the journey for me Took, took many many years I went in the Air Force I joined the police I got married I got divorced and, and literally uh, I had a couple of children uh, I did all the family kind of life things that you do but it was really only until the late 90s that I began to feel that uh, something inside me uh, was telling me to get involved 
The problem was that as a detective, I was a detective constable uh, and an advanced interview of suspects and witnesses, I worked at the sharp end. I didn't seek promotion because I quickly realised in the police that two things, one, that I didn't like internal petty politics, and two, that you probably had to have your brain removed to, to, <laughs> go, up the, uh, to go up the hierarchy chain. Yeah. I couldn't do that. I, I couldn't be a yes man. I would have to be very fair. So I quickly realised that the best job and the one that was the most active in terms of time spent not behind the desk, uh, because there's so much paperwork involved even then, uh, was as a detective and interviewing people. And I loved interviewing people, whether it be witnesses or suspects. So I, I gravitated towards that. Uh, and, and it was really when I began to feel that I wanted to get involved, I had to find a way to do something that would work for me and work around the shift work that I did and the very unpredictable nature of police work. I mean, if there's a major incident, you work day after day, 12-hour, 14-hour days, until you kind of get a suspect or there's a breakthrough in the case. That's the nature of policing. So I could never be one of those people that said, well, I'll go to a UFO club every Thursday kind of thing. It had to be something that worked around my strange lifestyle and uh, I then had a cutting a long story short I had a dream um, and I don't normally remember dreams but my dream was create a database about police officers who've seen UFOs and I was aware historically of four or five cases from books that I'd read by that time but you know at the time I was 41 years old when I went to Graham Birdsell and said look I've had this idea for a a police database would you let me write an article in your printed magazine and at that point I'd never written anything in my entire life uh, and as it were and uh, he liked the idea he knew that I was a police officer he liked the credibility angle and so he said yeah you can uh, launch it with the, the January issue of 2002 and that's when the database was publicly launched so uh, how many uh, of these UFO encounters by police have you assembled in the database so far? After We're now into the 16th year. I started with six historical cases involving, I think it was 10 police officers. Now, 16 years on, or into the 16th year, uh, over 550 cases, all British, involving over 1,100 British police officers, which I find uh, is pretty staggering. However, here's the thing, that despite the fact that the numbers have gone up year on year, the national media in the UK are not interested, no matter how many good cases they get there. Hmm. Uh, let me just interject something here, Ben. We have a question from a listener, uh, Jennifer in Uxbridge, Massachusetts. And Jennifer wants to know, all, all the, all, except for Woonsocket, uh, Gary, all the names around here are English uh, place names. So Uxbridge, okay. which is outside London, usually is uh, in yeah. Massachusetts as yeah. well. Uh, yeah. Jennifer would like to know if uh, how, how these reports by police are received by by their comrades. In other words, do police fe face ridicule uh, as much as they used to when they reported these things? And the second part of her question: How do you find out about them, the reports? Uh, well. What you've got to realise is the database is made up of a number of different sources. Uh, uh, things like when I've done newspaper archive uh, 
you know, uh, research through archives uh, and you find historical sightings. Some are historical in books uh, and many officers are referred to me, either they approach me directly or through an intermediary who then puts me in touch with them. So it's a mixture of things. It's a collation of, uh, of information. Uh, police officers now, there is a general rule that if you're a current serving officer, uh, most, I should say 95%, will not want to be named uh, they will approach me and say look I've had this event I've never seen anything before but I've heard about what you're doing uh, are you interested in listening to what I've got to say so I will start a dialogue with them uh, I will send them a sighting report form and, and the crux of it is that if, they, if they've had an, uh, either an on duty or off duty sighting and I make no distinction really between the two because the way I look at it is that if the police officer is trained uh, on how to write down any incident that occurs, whether it be a bomb, an accident or whatever, the police are trained to write things down in a way that could be presented in a court of law. That's the kind of training that you get. You break it down, time, date, place, chronological sequence, etc. So when you're off duty... Uh, and you have a sighting with your wife or say, then in, 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 in terms of your thought processes, it's exactly the same. So I don't make any distinction, and I would say that of all the cases on the database, 75% are on-duty sightings, but there is a you know 25% category that are off-duty, often corroborated by wife, girlfriend, family members who they're with at the time. Uh, but if you're a serving officer, you generally request anonymity for two reasons. One, you fear ridicule, and the second one is they perceive a risk to their career if they go public. And uh, that's, that's, that's actually very real in the sense of, let me quote you an example, last year a, uh, a police officer approached me at uh, the, one of the conferences that I do in the UK, and uh, between one of the lectures and uh, he said uh, he flashed his badge to me and he said uh, I can't uh, go public with this because I'm a firearms instructor and he said uh, I'd like to go public but I can't but he said I saw something off duty with my wife and he quickly told me what it was it wasn't a startling case but he'd definitely seen something that he considered unidentified flying object so by definition uh, it was worthy of going on the dirt best. And uh, I said, all you have to do is prove to me who you say you are. So he then went on over the period of weeks to produce all his police background, photographs, the in uniform, various other things that only a police officer talking to another police officer in the UK would know. Certain codes, crime reference codes, you know, the certain kind of codes that you can talk as one police officer to another that are universally known. And so what I say to people is, uh, providing you can uh, corroborate, confirm who you say you are, i.e. that you're a police officer, then I will grant you a confidential source status. So that's how I get it with officers that are, uh, are currently still in the police. As I say, 95% want anonymity. Uh, now, I kind of it kind of um, grieves me a little bit that, that that is directly as a result of living in an era of debunking that follows 
the Robertson panel in 53, the CIA Commission Robertson panel that was there uh, purposely to strip the aura of flying saucers because the public were fascinated by these things. And how do we do that? We work with the media in all its forms to debunk the subject. So anybody born after 1953, uh, of which I am, and I have no doubt majority of your audience are, uh, have lived in a world of secrecy. <laughs> well, I didn't <laughs> want to mention that, you see, but... <laughs> But, but, but realistically, that, what a terrible, sad indictment of society, and especially when this eventually does break. Yeah, I'll have to stop you. We have to take our bottom-of-the-hour yeah. break, but we'll be right back. Uh, this is Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We're speaking via Skype today with Gary <coughs> excuse me, Gary Hesseltine, uh in the U.K., and uh, we're going to talk about some police cases as soon as we uh, come back. So stick with us. Hey everybody, this is the Moose Man. Check out the groove line for the best blues, rock, funk, classic 50s, and the Beatles every single week. Tune in Thursdays from 6 to 7 p.m. That's the groove line right here on Owen. Owen Radio. Owen Worldwide. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. We have our, as our guest today Gary Hesseltine from England, and Gary is a uh, author, publisher, well-known UFO researcher, former police officer, who, uh, police official, uh, and he is going to tell us now, if he would be so kind, about some actual cases of police in the UK witnessing UFO phenomena. So take it away, Gary. Okay, let's look at uh, some that have just come off the top of my head. Um, so some of the cases that I like are the ones that are obviously multiple corroborated uh, and that are multiple objects. For example, uh, there's a case uh, uh, from a guy called, a former police officer called Trevor Blower, and uh, he, he sent me uh, details of the case that he witnessed in 1969, so a long time ago. But this is unusual because he's in a rural area uh, in the countryside on his uh, patrol as it were uh, when he gets a radio message saying uh, keep an eye out for some strange objects that may come towards you in the sky well that's kind of a pretty strange thing to hear over your police radio uh, and mm. he then became aware that other police officers who uh, that he was aware of uh, several miles away were also saying oh we're looking at some strange objects you know, coming the way where he in the direction where he was. So eventually, he sees a formation of nine white, what he described as pearly white spheres, moving towards him, and uh, they were in a tight arrowhead formation, um, which is not something you normally see. They were completely silent, and they just drifted by in total silence. Now. He uh, was aware that there were other officers, and after the sighting, he was told that the next day he would have to report to his local police headquarters, which he did, and there he found himself with five other police officers who had also witnessed this group of nine type formation uh, UFOs. And uh, they were all then interviewed separately by either somebody you refer to as a man in black, <laughs> um, wearing a black suit um, 
uh, who may be admitted, who may have been Ministry of Defence or perhaps Royal Air Force. It was never identified quite who they were, but they were interviewed separately. And at the end of each interview, because he chatted with the others afterwards, they were all told, "You are never to talk about this again." So that's again. Uh, it, it, this is one of the classic kind of tales that you get of of police officers or somebody, whether it be pilots or whatever, uh, being interviewed separately by somebody who clearly knows what's going on, uh, and then being told to keep it quiet. Well, again, the irony is that if there is nothing to this subject, uh, why would you do that? And it's ridiculous that you would if there wasn't something going on. Okay, let's talk about another case. I think this was from. Uh, late 79, perhaps 1980, I think it was 79, and this is in an area called Long Crendon, uh, which is uh, relatively close to London, perhaps uh, 70, 80 miles away from London. Rural area, three police officers, uniformed police officers, two police vehicles packed up next to each other in a rural area, and uh, they're just chatting and, and uh, passing the time, as it were, probably three in the morning. Then, uh, on the corner of their eye they see a light on the horizon very low to the horizon that flashes just maybe for a split second they look uh, and it's gone and then they don't think anything more about it however five minutes later when they're just talking in a rural area can you imagine no housing nearby a rural area two cars then suddenly it doesn't come left it doesn't come right doesn't come down from the sky it just turns on like a light bulb and there is this huge gigantic object that they describe as the size of a football field hovering about 500 feet off the ground and it's and it's uh, putting a beam of light as if scanning the terrain slowly uh, moving I think left to right scanning the terrain and they said that the beam was the width of a football field and they watch it and there is no noise and even more bizarre there are about five or six smaller objects manoeuvring around the larger object akin to a kind of a mothership science fiction scenario uh, of five or six smaller objects going around uh, and uh, basically after about five minutes and they're, in de they're debating whether to report it or not but they're thinking, well, if they do, they're going to think we're crazy. Uh, so basically, they just watch, and then suddenly, after five minutes, the object doesn't go left, doesn't go right, doesn't go up, it just gone. Like turning on and off a light bulb, as quick as that. And it was gone. And, uh, and that's one of my favourite tales because of the size. But let's even look at a bigger one uh, than that. Um, I get another call. This is from the early 80s. Uh, of a police officer and basically he's with another police officer in a police vehicle uniform police vehicle and uh, they're packed up uh, it's again early hours when all of a sudden uh, they see above treetops uh, not far away just above treetops a huge black triangle you know many people these days have heard triangles even though they have been reported since the 60s as far as I'm aware, but a huge black triangle hovering just above treetop level, close to their location. No noise, no appendages, no obvious signs of propulsion or anything like that, just there, no 
superficial features on the outside and he says to me this object was gigantic we were staggered and I said how big was it and he said it was the size of three football fields so I went three football fields how do you know it was that size he says because when we saw it it was above three football fields now that's a great validation of size and can you imagine in a relatively rural area this huge object that only these two police officers see uh, and I can think of no reason why they would make up such a tale uh, they see this object for about two or three minutes and then suddenly in the blink of an eye gone in the blink of an eye literally as quick as that wow. two officers corroborating that but that, that validation of size is one of the most impressive cases I've ever received because it was such a good validation it was over three football fields so I mean that gives you some really good strong evidence as to the size uh, another case this is a this is a uh, a uh, well, actually, can I stop you for a moment yeah. therefore because we have questions coming in from listeners uh, go ahead yeah. Ben this is from Den and I, I think that is southwest Missouri uh, oh. that, that's what I'm going to guess so okay. Den writes to us uh, does Gary have an opinion on whether the British government slash military uh, used the UFO phenomena as a cover-up for their technology, much like the U.S. government has? Uh, good question. Uh, I think probably historically, yes, in terms of missile tests and things like that. And I think uh, at times, like America, um, U-2, U-2 uh, overflights, things like that, you know, they were quite happy for people to say, oh, that's a UFO, when really it was a secret U-2 test. Uh, so I'm sure that the British have done it the same, because we're very uh, are closely associated with America. We generally follow America's lead, and historically, on the subject of UFOs, we very much work closely with the Americans, who, in my opinion, dominate the subject worldwide. Uh, so yes, uh, but that's not to say that uh, you know, do the British have man-made UFOs? Perhaps. Then I suspect that we may have some experimental people talk about the TR-3B and things like that. I do think, in general, that we probably have reverse-engineered uh, from uh, crashed UFOs uh, some level of uh, man-made UFO, but I don't think we uh, possess all the knowledge. I think we've got a, a, a very poor, you know, uh, association model, as it were, from the real thing, but I think we have probably got and developed some kind of technology from the reverse engineered crash trap. So we have uh, another question uh, from, I believe, our listener uh, Phil in Orange, Massachusetts. And uh, Phil writes to us, uh, In America, there have been disturbing reports of uh, civilian police officers encountering problems uh, with uh, their superiors after speaking publicly about UFO incidents uh, that they witnessed. Are the English authorities more supportive uh, when constables speak to newspapers? We briefly mentioned this. Or is disclosure a dirty word in England as well? Yeah, Phil says this is redundant. He said, but I don't think it's redundant. Maybe Gary can uh, address it. No, I, no I, I think like I mentioned with the firearms officer, which was only last year, 2017. So, I mean, that was current. He, he said to me, if I was to go public with my account, I would no longer be a firearms instructor because obviously it's a very responsible position uh, and he thought that he would be stripped of that job which he loved uh, so I mean that's a very palpable fear and, and again uh, like I said before the break a sad indictment of the secrecy that's uh, around this subject 
Um, so for me, it's still very real. The two prominent reasons, perceived risk to your career. And, and, le and let me tell you this, that in my career, when I first came up with the idea of the database and I told my detective sergeant, who was my immediate line supervisor, uh, he, and I mean, up to that point, we got on very well. He said, I don't think this is going to be very good for your career, Gary. You should think about what you're going to do. And I said, well, it's my hobby. You know, well, why should it be a problem? I said, do I tell you that your golf hobby is going to threaten your career? Why should it? <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, so that's the kind of thing. But it's a subtle little thing. And don't forget, with, with me, it did lead me over time into conflict and eventually it was the primary reason why I decided to leave the police early because in 2009 when the British uh, Ministry of Defence suddenly decided after 52 years I think it was to close its UFO reporting desk i.e. the same desk that Nick Pope had worked on for three years between 91 and 94 when they suddenly decided to close that on the guise of a cost-cutting exercise I wrote to all the police forces in England, Scotland and Wales uh, of which there are 43, I wrote to 38 because I didn't have enough stamps <laughs> but, <laughs> I wrote to 38 and included a letter to my chief constable of the force I belong to the British Transport Police well I kind of forgot about it the letter was quite clear I was doing it in an off duty capacity that I had an existing police database for police officers and uh, all I was asking them is uh, w because there was no now there was going to be no reporting facility they were still going to get cases because historically why should they, they not and I said if you do would you pass those details to me uh, uh, you know give them my details so they can contact me if they so wish I didn't really think anything about it. And at that point, I'd been public with the Proofos database for seven years and had not had that much interference. But at that point there, I then get summoned uh, about two weeks later uh, into my area commander, who was a chief superintendent, very high ranking. And he said, I understand you've written two various chief constables in the UK. And I said, yes, and I explained and uh, he basically said um, well it turns out that uh, our chief constable i.e. British Transport Police chief constable had received a phone call from another chief constable from another county it was never specified who it was which force it was but he said uh, this uh, chief constable had rang my chief constable and said who is this UFO nutty that you've got working for the police <laughs> and uh, because my chief constable felt a bit embarrassed and uh, for me he didn't have any bottle uh, he, he then instructed my chief superintendent to launch misconduct uh, disciplinary hearings against me uh, for bringing the force into disrepute and I said well how can I bring the force into disrepute when I've been doing it for seven years you've known all along where I've been doing because I had to clear things with them first and uh, I said, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. And I said, if I'd have chained myself naked to the railings outside of the police station and shouted, um, ummy, ummy, then I may, I, may, I may well have thought that, yeah, I have brought the force into dispute. But my letter was clearly in off-duty capacity, purely a perfunctory uh, letter explaining who I was and what I was trying to achieve. I said, so I don't think I was uh, bringing the force into dispute. Well, the long and short of it was, 
uh, I was then part of an investigation, subject of an investigation that lasted a year. These things are not quick. Uh, during that time, they have the power to decide whether to sack you or not. And there are various levels of misconduct hearing. And eventually, after about a year, I was told it was going to be a misconduct level two, which could be a fine or uh, some kind of censure. Uh, and so after a year of worrying about whether you're going to lose your pension kind of thing, get sacked, um, eventually I got a 12-month written warning for bringing the force into disrepute, hmm. even though to this day I will never understand that. But what, I will, uh, what that said to me is that if a large organisation wants to make a problem for you, uh, then they can. They find ways to do it. Yes. And uh, I, I think that pertains to all major kind of big organisations. They can turn the screw if they want to. So I realised that the writing was on the wall. And, and it was that that kind of made me realise, because by then it was 2010, 2011. Uh, you know, I thought, no, I could go on for a lot longer. But I think that if they want to cause a problem, uh, they're going to do it. So that's what made me think about leaving. And uh, as luck would have it, with my commuted uh, Air Force pension from the six years that I'd done in the Air Force, I had 27 years in the pension fund, mm -hmm. which is normally a 30-year pension fund. So that was quite a healthy amount that I could walk away with. Uh, I'd recently... Uh, met uh, who, my fiance, who went on to become my second wife, and she was a, a nurse. She earned good money. So, uh, with that and my pension, it gave me the uh, real thought of can I take the risk to leave? And then it was a question of what am I going to do? And then I, 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 I had the idea to create uh, an online magazine, your Thought Truth magazine. Mm -hmm. So by then, I'd done a lot of lecturing worldwide, and so I approached many of the speakers who I respected and said, you know, would you either write a regular column or an occasional column for the magazine? And pretty much everybody I approached said yes. So that's really how it happened. But yes, so for me, it didn't do my police career any good. And what I also found uh, is that uh, after going public in 2002 and my detective sergeant saying, you know, uh, this isn't going to be good for you, there were quite a lot of things that... Uh, there were a few little difficulties here and there. Never went to discipline, but there were things that made me feel as if I were being watched or singled out for scrutiny uh, that didn't exist prior to that, you know, for the previous 13 yeah. years. Perhaps you should have uh, listened to your superior and taken up golf. But uh, <laughs> it's a good thing no, you did. No, 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 I'm, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I did. But the, 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 the strange thing is, as, as you mentioned at the beginning with that first question, of you know do do I think that there is a something that's within you did you have a kind of link well I didn't have a link that I remember with my childhood sighting but I definitely feel that over the years something has compelled me to do what I'm doing mm -hmm. uh, very much so and there's so many strange coincidences that people talk about synchronicities which was a word I'd never even heard of until I got into this business uh, that I do believe something compels me to do what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, Gary, we're almost uh, through the hour here. Tell us again about UFO Truth Magazine and your websites and where people can find out more and uh, the conferences you've organized in the UK because we have a large listenership, as you know, in the UK and people might uh, want to come. 
Right, well, I appreciate that. Uh, well, UFO Truth Magazine is not in print. It's, a, it's an e-zine. Uh, the idea was to create the world's biggest English language under one roof, top experts, as it were. So people who write are like Nick Redfern, uh, Stanton Friedman, people who've wrote, written columns are like Steve Bassett, Richard Dolan, Peter Robbins, etc. Even, even I wrote one, I think, a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of, virtually everybody that you can think of has written for the magazine. And that's the idea, is to, is to create the, the magazine, English language, uh, and it's sent direct to your email. And, and basically, I'll give you a special offer while I'm on as well. Any of your listeners uh, can have a complimentary free copy. It's bi-monthly, 96 pages, sent direct to your email. So if anybody, get a pen and you can put it out on your website afterwards. That if they email me at heseltinegarry at hotmail.com and say that I've been listening to the Paul and Benino behind the Paranormal show, they can request one of the 29 issues that are out so far. We started in 2013. So that's all they've got to do to get a complimentary copy. Ezeltine, Gary, Hotmail.com, mentioned that you heard me on the show, and they can choose whichever number between 1 and 29. Um, oh, wow, well, thank all you. All right, yeah. so, so, okay, so the website, www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk. Uh, what you had problems with saying the first time was PROFOS, which stands for <laughs> Police Reporting UFOs. That's all you've got to remember, Police Reporting UFOs. That's PROFOS. Uh, policedatabase.co.uk they're all there chronological uh, I'm going to be doing a, a revamp of the website because it's a very basic site the, uh, the Proofforce site uh, and I've done that very simply because I don't want adverts I just want the basic information out there but I, I do plan to revamp the site uh, and bring a hell of a lot more information to it I'm currently writing uh, a book about the police cases um, which I'm hopeful it's 60% done other things keep getting in the way so it has to keep putting back mm-hmm. but I'm hopeful that it will come out next year um, I do two conferences a year in the UK for the magazine one is a one day conference in Watford uh, and that is uh, taking place on April the 28th uh, Watford is just on the outskirts of London and the headline speaker for that is Grant Cameron uh, and then there's myself uh, there's Steve Mira. Uh, and there's uh, uh, a, even a, a short video interview that I recently did with David Icke, uh, you may be aware of. So uh, that's a regular. And then we have the main two-day magazine, uh, which is in September in the town or close to the town where I live, called Holmford, very pretty area in, in the hills of West Yorkshire. And that's a two-day event. And there we've got the likes of Brian Forster, who does the ancient origin stuff, uh, and a regular appeared on Ancient Aliens. We've got Donald Smith coming over. Uh, we've got uh, Andrew Collins, who does the Ancient Aliens stuff. We've got Alan Godfrey, who is the former police officer, Britain's most famous abductee, uh, and recognised first abductee from 1980 as well. Uh, so one or two other speakers as well. Uh, and so it's, they're generally a sellout each year. We've now done, this will be the sixth international conference so that's in September 15th and 16th September this year Uh, just another thing that I'm working on briefly as well that's taking up a lot of my time is I'm writing or being the co-writer and lead researcher for a brand new documentary feature length documentary on the Reynolds and Forest incident called Purple Green and and Mm -hmm. this is independent 
and it's going to be at least 85 minutes long. We're hoping to maybe even get it to cinema at some point. Uh, and what I can say is that uh, it'll cover all of the Reynolds and Forest incident. And what? And I know you've done many shows on it. Yeah. But I'm one of the leading UK researchers on Reynolds, and my information and the information that I'm uncovering now will point to at least nine or even twelve different incidents, not just the two or three that we're aware of. Hmm. So Probably. there's a lot. There's a lot more to this, and I'm really going into fine grain detail. And uh, we're using on location. Uh, it's all in 4K aerial footage nice. that's never been shown and because it's independent with no TV bias no money bias no UFO negative bias we can tell the truth for the first time and I believe that there's a hell of a lot of information uh, that's been out there uh, for a lot of, of time but people kind of just conveniently sweep it to one side they never assemble it in the right way and uh, I, my intention is to get all of this information out uh, in a way that it's never been done before that sounds excellent because uh, w when we were there, we and I'll probably tell you about this privately if I haven't already. Uh, we had some interesting things happen, and that's exactly what we were trying to do: talk to witnesses, people who had not previously been interviewed, uh, local people. We did a talk in Wood Woodbridge, and and people came, and we were there way into the night to the frustration of the hotel manager. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, it, we had a full room, and people just they couldn't stop talking about things that had happened to them both before the 1980 um, incident that everybody knows about and the one after that so so we're following your project with great interest and i think it's wonderful so well, um, well, well let, let me just say uh, i've got a lot of flack coming my way from certain quarters yes. because of the premise of this film but let me tell you this the premise of the film is not built on one man's story the same story can be told and evidenced and corroborated by at least six or seven other people. Very now, that's good. not widely known, and it should be. Very good. Okay, Gary, we're just about out of time, and thank you again for the special offer for our listeners, and uh, we will put that on our website, and uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much. Anytime. Okay, thank very you. good. Okay, let's get to our announcements. Uh, what do we got there, Ben? Oh, we've got plenty going on. So plan to meet us on uh, May 26th and 27th at the Saucer Symposium at the KRI Center for Consciousness Studies in Stratham, New Hampshire. Uh, and there will be uh, great speakers, including Shane Searway, Andy Kitt, and many others you've heard on this show. And, uh, and this will be the fourth year in a row that we've spoken there, and we'll present some new material on our flap area cases. And we'll also do our second annual live broadcast from there on the, the 27th with a panel of the speakers. So watch for more information as those dates approach. And on Saturday, July 21st, we'll be back at the Danbury L Public Library in Connecticut to present a program on Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of based on our 2017 book of the same subtitle. And uh, on Labor Day weekend in September, we'll be back at the Exeter UFO Festival in New Hampshire. And uh, on uh, Columbus Day weekend in October, we'll once again be at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts. Uh, it's always a good time for reading and gift-giving. Somebody's always got a birthday, particularly someone who is maybe a little strange and would like what we write. So please consider autographed copies of our books. They're widely available, but if you order them, Online at either of our two websites, BehindTheParanormal.com, our show site, or NewEnglandGhosts.com, we'll be happy to autograph them for you. Uh, books include the first two in our Behind the Paranormal series, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, published by Schiffer Books in 2016. That's available in stores to this very day, I believe, but again, uh, you can, we won't, they won't be autographed if you get them in the stores. 
unless we're there. Uh, also, Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard Of, which we just mentioned. That was published uh, last year and currently available from online retailers and from us. Uh, also available are books I wrote myself in Days of Yore, uh, Faces at the Window, Footsteps in the Attic, etc., about my early cases from the 70s and 80s. And uh, I just signed a co- Ben is sitting this one out because he wasn't born during any of these things. I was not, sadly. Yeah, but uh, that'll give me a chance to dedicate the book to you. Hey. I can't do that. if You're, you're the last living relative I... I <laughs> Or not, whatever. Um, we'll have to go to our British relatives uh, to start dedicating books. Indeed. But in any case, uh, that's going to be uh, Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeists, Parasites, and Parallel Worlds. Enough alliteration for you there? Oh, I yeah. love alliteration. So we uh, signed the contract for that, and that'll be out to hopefully in 2019. So there we go. Uh, so in any case, again, check our website, BehindTheParanormal.com. We'll have a nice link uh, to the, the generous offer Gary made to our listeners today for UFO Truth Magazine. Also, there are over 760 shows now, over 760 hours of shows uh, for the last 10 years that we've been on the air, including um, all paranormal subjects, and they're all free, and you can check those out again, BehindTheParanormal.com. So... Uh, <clears throat> Don't forget about our YouTube channel as well that has yes. uh, all, has has case files on it and such, and we're working on cutting together a uh, a little a little uh, short short vignette of our, our latest trip to uh, New England Stonehenge. And uh, once uh, some some time frees up, because it is a busy time of year, we're we're going to post it on there, and uh, we're going to be working on some more projects as well. And also on the website, you'll find links to several charities that Ben and I have adopted, including uh, USACares.org and Canadian Veterans Advocacy, uh, also Help for Haiti, uh, and uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles. These are all charities. We know the uh, the people who run them, and they're really good. So next Sunday, what do we have, Ben? Uh, we have next Sunday, that's March 25th, we'll bring you an open line show here on Owen 1240 uh, with two popular guest co-hosts joining us to tackle our ever-growing stack of listener questions. And we'll leave you uh, with a quick quote here from uh, American author John Green. Some infinities are bigger than other infinities. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And that's all the time we have on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.